If you've been with us, we're teaching through the book of Ephesians. You can make your way there. Uh, we are near the end of chapter five, so you can you can find your way there. But but here's what we're doing: is today we're kicking off a multiple week kind of mini series within our teaching through the book of Ephesians that we titled "Family Matters." And the reason we uh, titled it that one is because I love that TV show from the '90s. Yes and amen. Anybody? Come on. Nobody? All right, just me. So I got to name the series, so I like that. Um, but uh, secondly, Paul is turning his attention now after showing us what it looks like to walk in love, and he's giving us this practical application of what does this look like within the family unit? What does this look like within the covenant of marriage? What does this look like for husbands and wives to see our identity in Christ and how that identity both informs and transforms our home life. So again, we're going to tackle uh, these issues. Today we're going to look at the foundation, the covenant of marriage. Next week, husband's roles. The following week, wives' roles. We're going to look at this mystery that Paul says that marriage is actually a picture of Christ and the church more in depth. We're going to see God's instruction specifically to children and to fathers. And then we're going to see God's instruction to work. And so my goal for today is really for us just to uphold the, the biblical view of marriage, to look at it and to rejoice in it and to say, this is awesome and this is beautiful because it's from God and he intended it to be awesome. And so if you are here and you are single or maybe you have been divorced uh, we don't want this uh, to isolate you in any way, shape, or form. I don't want you to feel any sort of guilt or shame as we look at the biblical design of marriage. But I just want us to all look at it and marvel at it and say, this is good. And this is from God. And we can rejoice in that. Because here's the thing. If you didn't know, God loves marriage. He loves it. And if you uh, know much about the Bible, the Bible begins with a marriage. Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve become husband and wife in the presence of God. The Bible ends with a marriage at the wedding feast of the Lamb, where the church is united ultimately and finally to Jesus Christ. And it's going to be a party, and it's going to be a good one. You're going to want to be there. And this theme of marriage is woven all throughout the scriptures, and it's a beautiful display of God's love for us, and we'll unpack that in a minute. But again, as we looked back at Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 21, we saw this calling of those who have put their faith, put their trust in Jesus Christ, this new identity that we now have in Him, that we're called to walk in love because that's who we are. We're called to walk in light, to walk in the truth that God has revealed to us. And we're called to walk in wisdom in a world that is filled with darkness. And now at the end of five, Paul is going to pivot and he's going to tell us, okay, now what does that look like to apply these principles in the context of the marriage covenant? What does it look like to walk in love? What does it look like to walk in light and walk in wisdom within marriage? So Ephesians chapter 5, you can follow on the overhead if you have a Bible. There should be one in a chair by you as well. But we're going to read verses 22 through 33 and then spend most of our time in verse 31. So let's read this passage together. 
It says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also should wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, so we're going to spend the next few weeks unpacking the entirety of this passage. But for today, the main idea on your notes there is this, is that God's design, his decree, and his desire is for the marriage covenant to be held in honor by all. Now, what this means is that not everyone who lives is going to end up getting married, but this covenant of marriage by God's design is something that all of us need to honor as God's decree and design for human relationship. Today, we're going to focus primarily on the marriage covenant, and Paul affirms This covenant as being from the beginning of time in verse 31, where he's quoting Genesis 2.24. I'll read it again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This we're, we're going to spend all our time unpacking this one verse. And let me do it quick, and then we'll go into it more in depth. So first of all, a man leaves his parents. Well, what does this mean? It means that he has to be able to provide for himself, right? A man needs to be able to work and provide so that he could provide for a family. Secondly, it tells us that he leaves, and then he holds fast to his wife. So he gets married to one woman in a lifelong covenant. And lastly, not least, the two become one flesh. They are joined together in sexual intimacy and a lifelong pursuit of relational oneness. This is how it was from the beginning. And so let's unpack this one at a time. The first note there is God's design for one man and one woman. Jesus... He quotes this same reference in Genesis in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. So Jesus is being questioned. He's being drilled by the religious leaders of the day. And they're saying, well, can we divorce? What can we do? And 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 Jesus gives this answer. He says to them, have you not read he who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In this text, Jesus quotes both from Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. So Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And then he says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Okay. So the creation of humanity, one man, one woman, God says, be fruitful, multiply, come together, fill the earth with babies. This is your playground. I want to take a minute just to talk about human sexuality in light of our culture today, because I think it's necessary. And I think there is a reason That God actually wrote down that he made us male and female, even as obvious as that might be. I think God knew that there would be a time in history like today where there would be gender crisis. Where there would be gender confusion. Where there would be a maligning of God's design of the marriage covenant. And so he gave us his word so that we know very clearly what he teaches about the marriage covenant and one man and one woman. You see, it doesn't take much to tell the difference between a boy and a girl. (laughs) Well, I won't go into my kid's expression of that, but anyway. We have different anatomy. Clearly visible. Adam and Eve knew they were different day one, right? Like they didn't have anything to cover up. So they, they knew full well what was going on and that they were very different. But we live in a culture where choice is God and where emotions are king. And even this common sense observable knowledge is being perverted. I recently saw this gender form and, and this is the question that it asks. It says, Share a word or words that reflect your internal sense of your gender. And I said, internal sense? Gender is an externally visible reality. It's biological. And I'm not trying to be insensitive to anyone. But there is a reality in God's creative order in making men and women for his purposes. And without the two of them, there is no reproduction and sustaining of human life. I think it's important for us to note that there are some men who may have more feminine characteristics Or there may be some women who have more masculine characteristics. That's possible in the range of personality and wiring, but that does not make a person born with the wrong gender. Gender is a God-given reality. So I think the bigger question for us as a church is not whether we we know clearly what the Bible teaches about gender and sexual orientation. The bigger question for us as a church is how do we treat those 
who are having a crisis of gender or confusion in their sexual orientation? That's our question. And the answer is simple, friends. We are to love, to be kind, to be gracious. And yet we are also to speak the truth in love. See, we should not shun or be repulsed when sinful people do sinful things. That shouldn't surprise anyone in the church to see human beings going around sinning. That's what we do. Sin or sin. This is one expression of sin. And as a church, we believe full well that only the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ can save a sinner. So no matter what sin anyone in this world is entangled in, we believe our only hope is to preach the good news of the gospel that can set any soul free regardless of their past or present struggles with sin. This is a big deal, church. God's created design from the beginning is that marriage would be between one man and one woman. This is the starting point of the family unit that has preserved society to this day. This brings us to our second point. And that God's decree is that marriage is to be a lifelong covenant of love. Lifelong covenant. This is what we get from uh, the verse when he says, you leave your father and mother and hold fast to your wife. Take hold of, in a sense, cling to, to join, to glue. It's a word of union. It comes with a change of status that often comes with and should come with a change of address. Men, don't try to get married and live with your parents. Not a good idea. Hold fast to your wife. Become a new family unit exclusive to the two of you. And the biblical term used to describe marriage is that of covenant. The word covenant. And Jesus didn't use this word explicitly, but he, he teaches it explicitly at the end of Matthew 19, 6, when he says, they are no longer two flesh, but one, two, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God is the one who ultimately ordains and says, this is now a union of marriage before me. This is a covenant and let no one separate this covenant. In Malachi 2.14, it's actually an indictment to someone who's been faithless, but this is what it says. It says, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. By covenant. And so a covenant is an agreement. It's an agreement defining a relationship between two parties. And it's really important for us to understand that God speaks to us as his people through this language of covenant. In the Old Testament, we were under the old covenant, which was under the Mosaic law and the sacrificial system. In the New Testament, we are under the new covenant, which Jesus came to provide and purchase through the sacrifice of himself and his shed blood on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. 
so that we could be God's people and no longer have barriers between us and him. And Jeremiah foretold of this new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 30, verses 31 through 34. This is what he said. He said this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the promise of the new covenant that Jesus fulfilled where God promises that I'm going to be your God. I'm going to forgive your sin. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to write my law and my ways upon the inside of you so that you delight in walking with me. I don't know if you notice this or not, but everything about this covenant is God initiated. Did you see that? God initiated the old covenant and God initiated the new covenant. This is all God's way of showing his abundant love to his creation. And in other words, I can put it like this, is that God saw our need as rebellious, sinful human beings that want to be the God of our own lives. And in his great love, he moved towards us to meet that need through sending his son to do something that you and I could not do for ourselves, namely be perfect before God. And then as a perfect sacrifice, he took our place on the cross, bearing the penalty of our sin and God's wrath so that we could be forgiven and no longer walk in fear of condemnation. And the good news of the gospel, friends, is simply this, is that God has held out the offer of salvation. God has accomplished everything needed for salvation. Our only job is to respond, to believe, to take hold of the gospel by faith and to receive this gift of life that God has promised to come into the new covenant. And by God's design, human marriage is a covenant relationship. When you stand up before people on your wedding day, you are also standing up before God. And when you make vows, this is the basis of the covenant. Your vows are the basis of the covenant. How do typical vows end? Until death do us part. Now, I've done quite a few weddings, and I have fun doing weddings. It's one of my favorite things to do. I love seeing a young bride and groom just delighting in each other, knowing they're going to have all sorts of problems down the road. But in that moment, it's just amazing, right? And you're like, this is awesome. Let's just be happy in the moment. You'll be in my living room in three months, but that's okay. Um, We got a baby laughing from that. That was awesome. Now I lost my place. Okay, 
So when I do weddings, I, I often spell out the difference between a covenant and a contract. Many of you have been to weddings. Maybe you've heard this shared before. But, but it, it's immensely helpful to our culture because our culture is one that understands contracts. Contracts are agreements that have conditions of performance with really well-defined exit strategies if someone else doesn't keep their side of the bargain, right? I'll keep my side of the bargain if you keep your end of the bargain. Otherwise, null and void, this contract is done. So a contract, if you see marriage as as a contractual obligation, you're going to think like this. I will love you if, fill in the blank. A covenant, on the other hand, in God's eyes, goes like this. I will love you regardless. I will love you, period. There are not clauses and exceptions. See, the covenant of Christian marriage goes like this. It consists of two forgiven people extending unconditional love, grace, and forgiveness to each other in the context of a committed, lifelong relationship. It's a covenant of marriage. This is why God tells us, hey, you you shouldn't be unequally yoked. And what he means by that is is you shouldn't yoke yourself or, or unite yourself to somebody who doesn't hold to the same convictions and beliefs that you do. Because if you try to do that, you're going to be pulling each other in opposite directions. That's why if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you should marry a follower of Jesus Christ. Because if he is your life, if he is your goal, if he is your pursuit and you come together in marriage, you're going to be pursuing the same thing that's going to unify you over a lifetime. But if you come together with someone that has a completely different belief system, it's going to be war. It's going to be a battle in your home. Many of you have realized this, but healthy marriages are not marked by the absence of conflict. Can I get an amen? Healthy marriages are not marked by an absence of conflict, but rather by active forgiveness and the active extending of grace to each other in the midst of conflict, sin, and hurt. This is how tangibly and practically the gospel, the power of Jesus Christ, works its way into our everyday lives. When we realize that we are all sinful people, that on a daily basis are sinning against our spouse, our kids, our God. We're sinning all the time. But when we realize, man, God's still committed to me. He still loves me. He's still for me. And yes, I am slowly becoming more like him. But there's not a day that goes by that I don't see that I'm in desperate need of his grace and his forgiveness. A marriage is a, a, a front row seat to your own sinfulness. (laughs) But it's also a front row seat for you to put the gospel on display to your spouse, to sacrificially lay down your life, to love and serve them in a way that's, wow, that reflects Jesus. How awesome is our God. God's decree for marriage is for it to be a lifelong covenant of love 
where we say, I will love you regardless. So what I want to do now is I want to invite up Tim and Sharon Wilms. Um, Come on up. Let's give them a little golf clap. These guys, I'm, I'm going to steal your thunder, but they just uh, they just celebrated 30 years, 30 year wedding anniversary next month, last month. So you just don't like get through 30 years of marriage just like you know unchallenged or uh, unscathed um, in some ways. But uh, I, I had a, a just simple question in light of us talking about marriage as a covenant. And so um, I've just asked them beforehand how this idea of marriage being a covenant, how has that both served them and strengthened them over these last 30 years? And so we're just going to hear from those who have uh, done well and made it a long way down the road. So, Well, like Matt said, um, we made that promise 30 years ago, 30 years in a month. Um, so fast forward today, I just asked Sharon, maybe you saw me whispering to her, but I said, hey, does my hair look okay? Or does it look windblown? Or, you know, that kind of thing. So 30 years includes 30 years of eye rolling on her part um, from dumb jokes. But in all seriousness, um, for us, we were pretty young when we got married. And um, from the very beginning, we just knew that we knew that we knew that we were in it together at that point. Um, divorce wouldn't be an option, and sometimes it was mind over matter. If we said it once, we probably said it 50 or 100 times to each other. We've looked each other in the eye and said, hey, we're going to work through this because divorce is not an option. And so we just had to remind not only ourselves but each other of that. And I compare it to... Probably everybody in this room has driven on Trail Ridge Road, you know, where you think, okay, that edge is right there. And if we don't stick in this together, we're going to be in trouble quick. You know, there's not a lot of wiggle room. And so that was kind of a metaphor that we've used for each other to say, we're in this together because too much that direction or too much that direction is not going to end well. So that's kind of what the covenant has meant for, for me. So, for me, um, we made our promises before our friends and family, Um, and that day was part of the honeymoon stage of life, where it was very easy to stand up in front of people and say, yes, I'm committed to this person, and then life happened, and as you all know, life is hard, and for me and Tim specifically... um, God allowed things to come into our lives that, statistically speaking, we could be and probably should be divorced today. Um, And so I'm very grateful for his presence in our lives because life was very difficult for us. And without that reminder of the covenant that we made right at the very start of our relationship I think we could have easily just gone down that road of, I don't want to do this anymore, and I don't want to do it with you. So um, just that reminder for us, um, God has continued to show his grace in our lives and to teach us. We are continually growing. We just had the fight to end all fights last week. (laughs) And... Tim has served as a model to me in so many ways through the years, and I am 
incredibly grateful for that. He is a model of forgiveness and love, and that has been an example of God's grace to me. So, Tim, I do love you. You guys are awesome. Come on. They still like each other. Who would have thought? That's awesome. Thank you guys so much for sharing. Um, that's just a, such a beautiful example of God's design as something, again, that, that keeps, keeps those guardrails in our marriages. Because you know what? Um, I really do believe that all challenges that we face in marriage uh, can be overcome with God's grace and with, with, uh, with both people being committed to one another as Christ has been committed to us. And so uh, we're going to transition to the last point on the notes. And uh, at first I was wondering if, if I would have a hard time keeping your attention. And then I realized, no, I'm going to talk about sex. And so I'll have everybody's full attention. So I just want to drop that so that now you're back engaged. Um, so here's the deal. God's desire for marriage, oneness, oneness. And the last part of uh, this uh, Genesis mandate in 224, the, the two shall become one flesh. Okay? Um, I've, I've heard this sometimes hyper-spiritualized, and there is a spiritual component of this that we'll get to, but this is a reference to the sexual relationship and its uniqueness within the marriage covenant, which is the seal and that which sustains a marriage over a lifetime. And I think we need to realize that the sexual relationship between husband and wife is a gift from God that should be regularly enjoyed exclusively within the covenant of marriage as God has decreed. You know, I think within the church, it's so easy for us to talk about the ways that uh, sex is, is misused, the way that it's abused, the way that, that it's sinful, and yet we don't spend enough time celebrating its beauty and its wonder and its splendor. Do you know that there's an entire book of the Bible about sex? The Song of Solomon, the Song of Psalms, God made sure that one of his books that we have is celebrating this reality. It's something that we, as married couples, would do well to celebrate regularly and often. Sexual intimacy is the place of our greatest exposure and vulnerability. It is not just a physical act, as some in our culture would argue, but it is an emotional and a spiritual experience. And this is why God reserves it to be enjoyed in the safest and most committed of all relationships. Physical intimacy sets marriage apart, and it's what makes it so sacred. The connections made between a husband and wife when they come together are designed to be one of a kind in the way that they bond us. As Jesus says, the two are no longer two, but one. I now see you as one unit. Gary Thomas is a pretty, pretty well-known marriage author. He recently wrote a book called Cherish. You may be more familiar with a book he titled Sacred Marriage. Uh, but in his book Cherish, he wrote a blog post, and I read it this past week, and I love this. It was really helpful. 
says this, and we should have the quote up on the overhead there. It says, when a man is cherishing his wife, she, not an act, is what he desires and cherishes. Sex becomes a tool to proclaim her beauty, her worth, her desirability, and her excellence. When a man desires sex in general, instead of his wife in particular, she is going to feel used rather than cherished. For your husband, cherishing means he also wants to be desired sexually, not serviced reluctantly. If he's healthy, he doesn't want obligation sex, though he may take it when life is crazy busy. Again, life is real. That's a shout out to all you young families. But his soul will be filled only by cherishing sex. He goes on to say this. Cherishing sex isn't about desiring sex. It's about celebrating your spouse. I love that. He says that makes your spouse feel affirmed. It's an avenue through which we affirm our spouse and their value and their worth to us. Then it says otherwise she or he may feel used. It's not about your needs. It's about her beauty, her desirability, her loveliness, and her pleasure. Wives want to hear the song of Psalm 6-9. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. Men, our wives want to know that we only have eyes for them. That we behold their beauty, and their beauty doesn't compare to anyone else's in our minds and in our hearts. And then it goes on to say this, But wives, your husbands want to hear Song of Psalms 5.16. He is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend. If you cherish your husband 99 ways but make him feel sexually undesirable, he's probably not going to feel cherished no matter what else you do. Sex can create all sorts of joy and it can create all sorts of issues within marriage. God's design for it is beautiful to be celebrated. But then when we come down into reality and how sin has marred everything and even messed up the way we think, it's not always expressed in this beautiful way that we see presented. But what we must fight for and we must acknowledge is that sexual intimacy is one of the primary ways in which we affirm and love and delight in our spouse. And God wants you to have a healthy, happy sex life. He does. He really does want that. And I just want a a little side note because Cheryl and I, through our journey... We've gone through different seasons when it comes to physical intimacy. We've had some physical challenges that have, that have had some hindrances and some obstacles we've had to work through and overcome. And there are some times where we've had to sit down with other people and say, hey, help us process this because it doesn't seem like we're getting anywhere. And I just want to encourage you that if you're here and if you're wrestling, that this is a great opportunity to know this is a place you can have honest conversations with people. And this is a place we're going to dive into this as part of our marriage weekend that we do here in the middle of next month. As we talk about what does this look like to to thrive in our physical intimacy within our marriages. But I want to read Paul's words, his instructions to the church of Corinth. And ironically, Corinth was a place that was also like over-sexualized, just like our culture is today. But he's giving these instructions to married couples in the midst of an over-sexualized culture. He says this, 
the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Wives, before you get offended. Likewise, husbands do not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Mutual authority over one another's bodies in a a covenant of lifelong love and commitment. And then he says this, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul is not telling us that we should be demanding of our spouse in this region, in this area, but that we should say, hey, I am yours and you are mine. We are here to love and cherish one another as, as the Lord sees fit. And here's what's so interesting is that this text, Paul tells us that to, to deprive one another of physical intimacy is a way we allow Satan to tempt our spouse. Sex is a spiritual issue. Do you see that? It's like, okay, if I refrain from my spouse, I'm like setting them out to go get tempted by Satan. I don't think we think that way. (laughs) That's what the text is saying, though. Now, this doesn't give a husband or a wife excuse to go out and meet their desires in some other form or fashion. This is, this is not excusing sin, but we need to realize that we all wrestle with the temptation to sin. And there's a way a husband and wife can continually serve one another in love that protects them. And we would do well to continue to abide by God's word. And here's what I found funny. I kind of chuckled about it this time. Um, he says that the one time you shouldn't come together, he says it should be limited and it should be for a time of focused prayer. I'm like, I'm just not that spiritual. Like that's the one time you're going to refrain. It's like, you know, there's something we really need to pray about. So let's stop being together for the sake of prayer. But then Paul says, what does he say? I'll just read what he says. He says, but then come together again. It's like, that's great. Maybe there's a time and place for that. But be sure you come back together again. I just want to acknowledge, and it's important for us to know, that there are times of legitimacy when there are physical reasons why a husband and wife cannot be together. There are, there are realities of the natural cycles of life where there are times it just can't happen or someone's sick or something is going on. And in mutual love, we should respect where our spouse is at in this area and not become demanding or selfish. However, I also believe that a lacking sex life can be a sign of spiritual immaturity and a misunderstanding of God's desire for the marriage covenant. And I don't think we see it that way. I don't think we typically see our physical intimacy connected to our spiritual maturity. And yet I would argue all day long there is an incredible connection between the two. That we would do well to explore deeper in God's word and to come to convictions on. All right, so I think I'm, I'm, I'm done 
primarily talking about sex. But here, here's the deal is that, that oneness is not just physical intimacy. We need to realize that oneness, while, while that's a part of it, it is much deeper in the way that our spouse should be the person that we know more than anyone else and that we are known by more than anyone else. Our spouse should be the only person we love above and above and beyond anybody else and receive love more than from anyone else. And lastly, our spouse should be the one that we first and foremost extend care to and receive care from. This is what oneness is. Oneness is this this exclusive relationship that your spouse comes before your kids Your spouse comes before your parents or your siblings or your friends. We're going to dive deeper into this concept of oneness in our marriage weekend. And so again, I just want to make a plug that it will be worth your time to be there. But oneness in marriage is a place of knowing and being known. It's a place of loving and being loved. It's a place of extending care and receiving care. And as the body of Christ, we have the opportunity to put the love of God on display through the way we love our spouse. When the world sees the way we love and cherish our spouse and the way that we honor marriage, they marvel at God's design. Because we live in a world, let's be realistic, that marriages are just broken all over the place and, and they're broken within the church. And yet there's something God has called us to honor and to fight for and to invest in because it's worth it. And God's design is right and beautiful and good. Therefore, we would do well to follow the words of the author of Hebrews 13.4 when he says, Let marriage be held in honor by all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. God wants our pure devotion to him. And one of those reflections is our pure devotion to our spouse. And as we've said, marriage is when one man comes together with one woman in a lifelong covenant of love where physical intimacy is mutually enjoyed and oneness is pursued for a lifetime. It is good. It is hard but it is worth it. And as a church, we are committed to fighting for the marriages of this church. We will come alongside you in any way we can to help you strive for God's best so that you can be healthy, so that your home can be a place of life and joy, and so that your kids can see a marriage after God's own heart. It's worth fighting for, friends. It's beautiful. And God will bless us as we pursue and honor his design.